see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Welcome to Discovery, the national science show where science, art and culture cook up a tastier picture of our world. So for the next half hour, relax and let your brain out to play. I'm Ian Wolfe, and tonight we'll be looking at abnormal mathematics and the true history of the computer bug and the admiral. But first up is Discovery News with Chris Stewart. This week in the news, a bunch of weird stuff from the British Association for the Advancement of Science's annual festival of science in Glasgow. Theoretical physicists have discovered the next big thing in disaster scenarios, and boy is it a doozy. Dr. Benjamin Allenbach, a research associate at the Geneva-based particle physics lab of CERN, was reporting on the properties of a theory known as supersymmetry at the British Association for Advancement of Science's recent conference. Supersymmetry is a candidate for an all-encompassing theory to describe the forces and particles that make up our universe. It takes up where Einstein's relativity and quantum theory leave off. Now, according to the rules of supersymmetry, there's a small but real chance that a couple of quarks, those fundamental lumps of matter that comprise everything around us, might collide in such a way as to set off a catastrophic change in the laws of physics. The effect would be to turn off the electromagnetic force. That's the force that holds atoms together in a bubble of space-time that would grow at the speed of light. Everything in the path of the rapidly expanding bubble of destruction would be instantly destroyed. Fortunately, said Dr. Allenach, this doesn't seem to have happened yet in the 15 billion years the universe has been kicking around, so there isn't much to worry about, besides which it's only a theory. From the well-now-isn't-that-nice department, a group of German scientists from the Ludwig Maximilians University have developed a range of environmentally friendly explosives. Apparently, though generally weapons are supposed to be deadly if aimed at the enemy, testing explosives on home turf gets to be a problem if the explosions leave behind toxic chemicals. These days, many explosive weapons contain a couple of chemicals known as HMX and RDX, chemicals that leave behind metals and halogens in the soil and water after the explosion. Well, tests have shown that these byproducts can be harmful to the liver and central nervous system if ingested or absorbed through the skin, a problem for people and animals near the test sites. Propellants used in munitions also produce significant amounts of hydrochloric acid and aluminium oxide, neither of which are terribly nice for the local biosphere. The researchers' new explosives and propellants, which contain nothing but carbon, hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen, are much less likely to cause harm to the environment, so that's okay. Now, there's a Monty Python sketch where a writer pens the funniest joke in the world, so funny that it kills him. Eventually, the army gets hold of it and translates the joke into German to help win the war. It's better when they tell it. <clears throat> now, in a bizarre twist of science imitating art, the hunt is on for the world's funniest joke. Psychologist Richard Wiseman of the University of Hertfordshire has created The Laugh Lab, an online repository of jokes submitted by people from around the world. It's an attempt to find the funniest jokes known to humanity, all in the name of psychology. The study aims to examine questions such as, are there jokes that men find funny, but women don't? Well, duh. Is there such a thing as a universal, worldwide joke that everyone finds funny? Well, one nation comes to mind. Can 
computer-generated jokes be as funny as the ones thought up by humans? Can you even tell the difference? At the end of the year, Dr. Wiseman will get a professional comedian to record a selection of the best gags a number of times, changing the all-important ti tim timing with each delivery. People will be able to vote on the different versions of the jokes to choose the one with the optimum timing. A lucky volunteer will then get his or her brain scanned while this uber joke is played to them in an attempt to see just what's so funny. You too can help this research along by submitting your favourite jokes at www.laughlab.co.uk. And next, Gina Sartori returns with his historic series, The Daughter of Time. Bring it on. Hello and welcome to The Daughter of Time, returning after a long holiday in the Seychelles. Well, I was chatting with my little radio colleague Ian, he of the tell a joke to Gina when she's about to start a live read fame the other day and don't ask me how we got onto this topic we started talking about the derivation of the term computer bug I had a vague recollection of a story that went something like this the term computer bug was coined by Grace Hopper in the mid 40s after a moth flew through an open window into one of the relays of an early computer temporarily shutting the system down Hopper pasted the moth into the maiden's logbook with the caption, Bug. Alas, dear listener, Ian disillusioned me by pointing out that the term bug, meaning some kind of failure or glitch, had been in use for some years, particularly by engineers and aviators, a more corporeal form of gremlin, I guess. However, I felt that this was the sort of story that really should be true, so I had a bit of a dig around. Now, it's true, bugs had been around for a while and had even been used by very early computer scientists before Hopper. Still, she was the first person to extend the term to include software rather than hardware problems and also coined debugging, the removal of such errors. More importantly, the moth in the logbook exists and I've seen a photo of it, so there. What was a woman doing hanging around the blokey halls of early computer science? I mean, Ada Lovelace aside, weren't they all pipe-smoking boffins with leather patches on their tweed jackets? Well, I suppose that doesn't necessarily exclude women, but still. Grace Murray Hopper was born in New York City in 1906. She was fortunate in her choice of family. Her mother had studied geometry privately, mathematics being considered inappropriate for a woman at that time and her father, an insurance sales broker, encouraged Grace to pursue higher education and to live outside traditional feminine roles. He also kept her supplied with materials on which to exercise her curiosity. One of my sources relates that by the time she was seven, she was dismantling alarm clocks in an attempt to find out how they worked. The source doesn't say if she succeeded, although she did go through about seven, or if she got them back together again. Hopper graduated from Vassar with a degree in maths and physics in 1928. In 1930, at the age of 23, she received a master's in maths from Yale, then in 1934 a PhD. And from 1931 to 43, she was a maths instructor and then associate professor at Vassar. 
In December of 1943, Hopper joined the Navy. Though she was over the age limit at 34 and under the weight limit at 47 kilos. Also, her position as a maths professor was declared crucial to the war effort, so she wasn't really supposed to enlist at all. This didn't stop her, though, from graduating first in her class in the Midshipman's School for Women. Her first Navy assignment was at the Bureau of Ordnance Computation at Harvard, where she worked on the Mark I, the world's first large-scale digital computer, which was used to calculate aiming angles for naval guns in various conditions. When I say large-scale, Hopper describes it, it was 51 feet long, 8 feet high and 8 feet deep and it had 72 words of storage and could perform three editions per second. At 16 metres by about 2.5 by 2.5, that's not quite in the same league as the notebook I wrote this on, but it's still faster than I can do edition. Fortunately for me and people like me, Hopper helped to develop, as she put it, the machine that assisted the power of the brain rather than muscle. After the war, though no longer in active service, Hopper continued working with computers at Harvard. Gradually she became more involved with software rather than hardware and was in fact one of the major figures in the development of software. Early computers, as well as filling rooms, performed their calculations physically. That is of course still true in a way, it's all just electrons after all, but in those days to change the calculation you had to swap a few leads around set relays and whack in some more vacuum tubes. Now we leave the, side, the hardware alone, unless it's been really, really irritating, and write logical problems which run on it. Hopper was a major figure in the development of both the idea and the actuality of software, and in 1953 she developed the first compiler, which by translating words into machine language, meant that programming became less a matter of physical manipulation and more a matter of logic. In fact, you could say she, she invented programming, in her words, because she was lazy and hoped that the programmer might return to being a mathematician. Hopper's work on compilers and on making machines understand ordinary language instructions led ultimately to the development of the business language COBOL. Her work also foreshadowed or embodied enormous numbers of developments that are still the very bones of computing. Subroutines, formula translation, relative addressing, the linking loader, code optimization and symbolic manipulation. At the time of her death, she was still an active consultant for the computer company Digital. Grace Hopper was also a, a gifted teacher from the sounds of it, who perhaps because of her early work, could always ground the esoteric in the concrete. To illustrate the idea of code efficiency, for example, Hopper would hand out lengths of wire about 30 centimetres long to her students. These were their nanoseconds, as that was the length of wire traversed by an electron in a nanosecond, and they weren't to waste them. For extra emphasis, she herself would brandish an entire microsecond, a coil of wire 1,000 feet that's 300 metres long. Hopper died in 1992, having attained the rank of Admiral. But I think my favourite of all her awards was the one she received in 1969, the inaugural award from the Data Processing Management Association, the Computer Sciences Man of the Year.
That was Gina Sartori with The Daughter of Time. You're listening to Discovery, the national science show broadcasting on community radio satellite. Next up, purely normal mathematics and the trouble with lichen. Hi, this is Douglas Adams. I'm the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and I'm here to urge you to listen to the national science program on Discovery. の Tim Baines attempts to square the circle and show the interesting side of pure mathematics. A little bit irrational, possibly random, but nothing abnormal. Many people will know of the number pi. They might even remember a high school maths lesson where they were told that, simply, pi is equal to the circumference of any circle divided by its diameter. It's represented by a strange little Greek symbol and it has a special button on a calculator. And that is where many people would have left it. But mathematicians aren't like many people. And mathematicians just can't leave pi alone. They keep on wanting to calculate pi to more and more decimal places. The truth is, the subtle and intriguing characteristics of pi have remained a source of great curiosity for more than two millennium. In June this year, a new hypothesis has been put forward that suggests a direct link between pi and randomness. Pi is one number in a category of numbers called the irrational numbers. By irrational, I don't mean that these numbers run around skittishly howling at the moon. What irrational means in math speak is that the number can't be expressed as a fraction or a ratio. Irrational. This means there is no way you could divide one number by another number and come up with an irrational number like pi or the square root of 2. One consequence of pi's irrationality is it has an endless series of digits that never repeat. The idea that all those decimal places go on forever is a little bit disturbing in itself. Does this mean pi has some kind of link to infinity? Well, funny you should ask, because you can calculate pi by adding a specific series of numbers together, though it's not really a surprise to find that those series of numbers are themselves infinite. Okay, so let's ask another question. Is there any order to the numbers in that infinite sequence of decimal places? Well, apparently not. 
I say apparently because even though mathematicians have calculated pi to two billion decimal places, no one has yet been able to prove whether or not the numbers in pi occur randomly. In fact, it's been quite difficult just working out where to even start to answer that question. One necessary condition for a truly random sequence of numbers is normalcy. Again, the word normal has a special mathematical definition. Here it means that any given digit like 2, 7, 9 would be equally likely to appear in a series of random numbers. If you picked a normal random number that was 100 digits long, you'd expect that within that number the digit 3 would show up about 10 times, and all the other digits would have an equal likelihood of being represented 10 times out of 100. If you can show that a number is normal, it's pretty likely to also be random. During the 80s, David Bailey of the Lawrence Barclay National Laboratory calculated pi to 30 million decimal places specifically to see how often each digit between 0 and 9 showed up. He was quite encouraged to find that indeed all the digits occurred about 3 million times, a 1 in 10. However, this does not show that pi would be random for the next 30 million decimal places or even the next 10. So the randomness of pi remained resolutely unknown and time passed. Until 1995, when Bailey and others from Montreal University in Quebec discovered a strange new formula that enabled you to predict the digit at any given decimal place in pi without knowing any of the other decimal places. There was the minor problem that this formula only worked in base 2 or 16, but it was nevertheless very interesting to mathematical folk, and Bailey hoped that such a formula might have something to do with the normal nature of pi. What also caught Bailey's mathematical eye was that the formula was strikingly similar to certain chaotic computer algorithms that are used in games and simulations. Five more years of brain-hurting mathematics, and then a few months ago, a guy by the name of Crandall showed that some chaotic sequences of numbers displayed normalcy. By itself, this conclusion might not have turned everybody's world upside down, but put it in combination with Bailey's formula for pi, what Bailey and Crandall immediately saw was a way to start on the question of whether pi is normal and therefore perhaps random. The Bailey-Crandall conjecture goes like this. If the digits of pi can be generated using a chaotic formula, and if the chaotic sequence of numbers can be shown to be normal, then you could show that pi itself is normal and therefore random. So, is it normal to be irrational? Well, it still seem, still remains for anyone to prove that pi, or for that matter any irrational number, number, is normal. But I can say that if you are normal, there's a good chance you're random, and if you're irrational, it's pretty likely you're both normal and random, and not a little chaotic. That was Tim Baines talking about pi without a single bad pun. To come, Lycan Under Pressure and Clownfish reveal their secrets.
Lichens are a unique plant because they're an association of two different sorts of organisms, a fungus and an algae. What's more, lichens are extremely sensitive to environmental changes such as pressure, especially in forests. That's why they're being used for monitoring commercial forestry plots, as Gintaris Cantvillis of the Tasmanian Herbarium explains. Well, at this stage, our project is in its infancy. We've joined with Forestry Tasmania as part of their long-term monitoring project in southern Tasmania. And what we are trying to do at this stage is simply to establish a baseline for what species occur in these forests and where they grow. So this is a lot of field work, a lot of laboratory work, and we're trying to just get this baseline. Beyond that, once the forests have been logged, we will be revisiting them on a regular basis and monitoring which of those species are returning to the forest as the regrowth matures. Are there going to be any species that will disappear? Are there going to be any additional species that become favoured and begin to grow there that were unable to grow there in the old growth forest that was there earlier? What do you see as the long-term implications? The long-term implications could be that one of the avowed aims of forestry here and everywhere else is sustainability. And here we have a very important group of organisms in fact, we haven't, mentioned, we haven't talked about their diversity at all, but we've recorded about 134 species of lichens in these forests, which is rather a lot. They number the flowering plants or the larger components of the forest very substantially. So this is a large slice of the total biodiversity of the area. We're also doing the same, incidentally, with mosses and liverworts, but that's another story. So the long-term implications are that we hope that the logging practices that go on will somehow be able to meet the requirements of the maintenance of these species. We already know that reef fish are big, brightly coloured, attractive and are seen on almost every postcard of the Great Barrier Reef. Bridget Green from the Department of Marine Biology at James Cook University is using clownfish as a model to gradually learn more about the biology of the species of the reef. What we don't know about is their larvae or their babies and reef fish produce thousands and thousands of offspring every year. Some of them produce millions but it's been estimated that 99.9% of these offspring die. So what we're interested here is looking at the development of these fish and trying to work out why so few survive. These larvae look nothing like the adults. They're transparent. They hatch out between 1 millimetre and 20 millimetres long. So, you know, less than the size of your fingernail, a lot of them. Is this typical of the various reef fish species? It is. So the range for all the reef fish species that I know of is between that 1 and 20 millimetres long. What have you learned so far from your study of the clownfish species? They're one of the fastest developers, for one. They can swim up to 49 body lengths a second. And to put that into context, Ian Thorpe can swim at two body lengths a second. So it's pretty amazing abilities for such little fish. Another species of fish that we've looked at, which is three centimetres long, can swim for 100 kilometres without a rest. We've also found out with the clownfish that they can survive a couple of days without feeding, which is quite important because when they're in the open ocean, they don't often come across food. And it's always thought that 
didn't feed every few hours that they'd die, but I've actually found that they can go for three days and survive quite nicely. What was known about reef fish prior to this research? Very little. It was thought the reef fish couldn't swim, they couldn't see and they couldn't feed and we now know that they have incredible swimming abilities, incredible visual abilities. They can see enough to feed at 100 metres deep. We didn't really know what a lot of species look like so through breeding them you get to know what the offspring look like as well. So certainly we're increasing um, our knowledge in a wide range of things. Thanks to Ian Cohen of CSIRO for those interviews. Valero, que ya no quiere cantar la rumba buena Será que ya no le gusta más los cueros Pero sin cuero no hay rumba ni tema that's all from Discovery, the National Science Show. If you'd like any extra information, you can contact us by email at discovery at zip.com.au. Contributing to the program were Tim Baines and Gina Satore, with Gina providing technical support and additional material from CSIRO. Discovery was produced by Chris Stewart in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally on ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Ian Wolfe. Please tune in next week for more science. Y